performing an assessment on a patient is so important. So whether someone has a medical problem, you know, whether they have chest pain, whether they've got a respiratory problem, or whether they have um, a mental health problem, we need to perform an assessment on that patient because it's all part of a medical assessment. I remember one job in particular, I was sitting in the back of the car with his patient who decided he was going to play chicken with trains um, on on Sydney train station. So oh. he was kind of running around Sydney train station and then the police were chasing after him and then they'd managed to grab him and they pulled him up. And so we were taking him up to the hospital there and sitting in the back of the car with his patient and he was literally staring at me in the back of the car. And I'm like, I just don't really know what's going on here because mm. I've never been in the back of the car with anyone like this. Like, I don't know what's going on. And then he decided to start seeing Janie's got a gun. You don't know that until you've seen it and mm. you don't see it until you have that experience on road of just being, um, going to many jobs all the time. And by having that exposure, by being out there day after day after day and seeing multiple patients, do you have that experience of being able to pick up the nuances and being able to understand the differences of the presentation so that you can make those good clinical decisions. Welcome to the ED Jam. Hey Frothers, welcome back to the EDGM podcast. This week I chatted to Tara. She's amazing. She's an intensive care paramedic and also a lecturer at university. She is amazing. She's passionate about teaching and learning, but she's really passionate about mental health. Um, and this episode is going to be amazing um, for all the first responders out there, but also for everyone else involved. Um, I think mental health has come a long way and we're going to hear about Tara, a bit about the history of mental health assessments uh, and how she performs one as well. Um, we also, a bit of a trigger warning, we do touch on topics such as suicide um, and we do touch on things such as um, PTSD, stress, overload uh, and all the things that do affect us as clinicians as well. Um, I think it's really important to remember that as first responders, or in emergency work, we do have a high level of stress put upon us. Um, so it's important to remember that these things do affect us. Once again, if you're not in the right headspace today, don't listen to it. Um, go listen to some music, go and exercise, go and walk, do something else. Um, but if you're interested and you're in the right zone and you've got the right environment and you're feeling like this could be an episode you want to listen to, well then press play and keep listening. Um, I hope you enjoy it. There's some really cool themes um, and I really think it's beneficial for anyone who will be dealing with mental health patients. Uh, and I think it's come a long way. Um, so let's crack into the episode. You. Um, now, we're going to crack into the podcast um, and we're going to be talking about mental health, um, which is going to be epic from a paramedic's point of view. Um, and you've got some awesome stuff um, that we're going to crack into. Um, the part one is talking about mental health movement. Um, so we're going to sort of crack straight in and we're going to find out a bit about you 
um, not only as a clinician, but as a person as well. So Tara, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So a little bit about me. Yeah. Um, I joined the ambulance service, ambulance service, when I was 23, fresh faced, um, very green, um, very little life experience, grew up in the Shire, um, thought it was a good idea to kind of join the ambulance service. Um, boy, did I not know what hit me when I <laughs> went out there. Um, did my training. Yep. Uh, 12 weeks at Roselle was what I did when I joined, you know, at various times it was shorter, longer, whatever. Uh, but when I did it, it was 12 weeks. So you went in there. It was all about cardiac arrests and major trauma and car accidents and pulmonary edema and, and AMIs and all of this kind of stuff. So after that training, I went out on road thinking that every single job that I was going to get called to was going to be some kind of huge, like exciting major life event. Yeah. <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't that. <laughs> you know, and as we all know, when we go out and work on road, uh, we are, um, realize that very quickly that a lot of what we go to is certainly not anything like what we think it's going to be. So I think it was a good six months before I did my first pulmonary edema. Hey, um, I know, I know. And I don't know how long it's been since I've done one, you know, like from now, I reckon it's been about, you know, 18 months since I've done one, you know, from now when I look back. Um, mental health. Mm. We didn't do any education in mental health when I first started. I don't even think there was a mental health protocol or any yeah. kind of mental health procedures then. Um, there was nothing. So this was January 1999 when I started. Um, I worked at Hurstville. So I did my training at Hurstville and then I worked in the city. So I worked at Dremoyne um, in the city uh, and then at Summer Hill. So I spent a lot of the time in the inner city and the inner west area when I was doing my training. Um, it was a very big shock to the system for a very young and green girl. I mean, I loved the job and I still love the job now, but it was a real, it was a real eye opener um, and it was a real shock. What inspired you initially to go and become a paramedic? Was it someone you saw? Was it something you read? Was it, um, yeah, an experience that you had? It was really funny because I had a friend that was applying at the time, one of the guys that I worked with, um, and I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds really cool. But mm. it was never anything that I'd actually kind of aspired to do before then. Um, and I got in and he didn't. So it was actually kind of funny at the time, um, but it was probably the best thing in my life. You know, yeah. it was the best experience, the best thing that ever happened to me. And I'm so glad that I did get in because I love it. Like it's, you know, it's something that I am still doing now and, you know, still work on road, even though I work in academia now as well, um, but still love working on road. And it's something that I still, you know, have a foot in, even though I'm still working in academia. Yeah. I want to just add something in on that because I love clinicians that work in academia and I've worked mm. previously in academia, but I love people that stay in touch in the clinical setting because it just makes you such a great teacher and such a great academic when you actually previously did it. Like last week, I actually saw that and it gives you respect with the students, but it also helps you as a clinician. Um, so I want to say I love people that are doing that and that have the balancing act between academia and, you know, 
road. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it's a really, really important thing. And the thing with um, paramedic work is that it's always evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very different now than it was five years ago, than it was 10 years ago, than it was 20 years ago, which is really the thing that I was talking to you about. Um, that is kind of generated the conversation that we're having today is how much things change over time. And I think that that's one of the biggest drivers why I really want to stay involved in paramedicine and stay working on road because I feel like it makes me a better academic to understand what really happens on road so that I can bring that to my students and I know what it is that they need to know within the field of education because um, I'm there and I see it every day and I live it, you know. I'm not just, you know, reading it in books and I'm not just kind of learning it from other people or hearing it in a conversation. I'm doing it every day when I go to work. 100%. And that's so true, hey. It's like knowledge come to life when people actually say, well, actually, the patient I had, and we had one recently, not a classic example of a, a dissection it was a bit weird and so it's not until you've had people that have had experiences say oh i have seen one lady like that she presented like this and you're like oh that's interesting mm. um so yeah. it's all black and white if that makes yeah. sense because when you don't have the experience um you aren't able to understand the differences and be able to kind of decipher what's going on between the two and be able to work out the differences to make those clinical decisions and yeah. to make to make them accurately that's good i like that I love how we talked previously off air about, you know, sometimes when we do a podcast, we want a real sexy topic, you know, we, like yeah. we want you know, stabs, we want, you know, gunshots, we want to get fired up. And that, that fires us up because we are, we love that high energy because our jobs have the high energy, but it's mm-hmm. also really awesome in relation to mental health because um, we can apply this daily, the stuff we're going to talk about um, into yeah. the patients that we see. Yeah. Uh, and actually, when you realise it, it actually really does have a great impact on our patients. Um, every day. Yep. Yeah, every day. Like, mm. every day. Like, the funny thing is with mental health, like, I remember when I first started, um, like, I remember the girl that stepped out on road, like, in those first couple of years. Um, I had no guidance from any of the people that I worked with. They just thought mental health was a joke. Like, any of the mental health patients that we went to, Um, I wasn't told or wasn't taught by anyone that I worked with how to speak to them or what you needed to do or anything like that. It was just like get in the back of the car, we're just going to hospital or whatever. And I'd sit in the back of the car. And I remember one job in particular, I was sitting in the back of the car with his patient who decided he was going to play chicken with trains. And at that point in time, I just look at him and I froze. I was absolutely petrified. And I had no idea about like risk or anything like that. Like I look back now in that situation and like, I don't know if I feel if he was a risk or anything. I think he was just more of a risk to himself than anything else. But that poor little 23 year old girl sitting in the back of the ambulance with this guy who was staring at me singing, Janie's got a gun was, I think he picked on the picked up on the fact that I was scared and he was staring at me and he decided that it was going to be his his day to just freak me out Mm. and just start singing Jamie's got a gun so I just kind of froze and then as he sing it he was getting louder and louder and louder and then my partner in the front of the car is eventually hurt and then he's like bashed on the back of the car and going oi you shut up and then so he just 
stopped singing them and then he was just staring at me again in the back of the car and honestly I think I don't think I've ever been that scared in the car at all like during my training at that time it was just awful holy mackerel yeah yeah people that are listening out there just for even sitting in the ambulance from the front to the back like you're very isolated in the sense Mm. of you're stuck and you've got not a lot of room as in like it goes down yeah you are stuck yeah, so this was the time when we were in the F100. So this was like 20 years yeah. ago in the F100. So there was like a little window between the driver in the front of the car. So like a tiny little window. And I was sitting at the back here and there was a tiny little door on the side and then the big flat door on the back of the car that he could have like literally gone out of the back of the car if he'd wanted to at the time. Um, and I'm just like sitting in this chair. I was just willing the car to get to the destination and I'm just like I have never been more scared in my life and I'm just going oh my god I just want to get to where we want to go like this is so awful like it was so bad because I had no idea what was going on because I had no education like no one no one taught us anything about mental health and I had no I didn't know if I was supposed to be scared because I'd never been taught anything like it was terrible and do you think that came down to the lack of training that you got initially or do you think it came oh yeah definitely definitely because fear comes from from a lack of understanding like fear comes from no understanding so if we'd have been taught um I mean there was there's a couple of things really like fear comes from the lack of understanding so if I'd have begin adequate education initially from from when I'd first started in the job um, about mental health conditions and performing a mental um mental health assessment on the patient and performing a risk assessment on the patient because the risk assessment is really important in that situation and also be given some guidance by my training officer at that point in time as well who just decided that the whole thing was funny and this guy was you know wasn't even worth his you know any effort at that point in time so he just decided that he was gonna you know drive on the way to hospital which was the mentality of the way that paramedics operated at that time as well. So it kind of, everything was consistent with the way that things operated around the year 2000. So that's kind of what happened then. So, you know, it was good that we moved forward from then. Yes. That was consistent with what what happened around about that time. Mm. Performing a mental health assessment on that patient encompasses performing, you know, like, a, a systemic-based assessment, so finding out what, you know, what what is going on for that patient prior to attending to them, you know, what what is the cause or what's the incident prior to attending to that patient, you know, are there any precipitating events that happened, you know, mm-hmm. to cause them to feel that way, you know, and then going on to performing a mental state examination mm-hmm. forms, you know, your assessment of that patient and then really identifying whether there's a risk to that patient um, or to anyone else around that patient to decide what the best course of action is for that person. Mm-hmm. And that's just as important as assessing someone who has chest pain, you know, but unfortunately not everyone sees that and ranks it as highly as, as other things. Um, but it is as important as other things really isn't it yeah and I think you're correct there on that too it doesn't have that sense of like 
sometimes tangible things that people want to latch onto, like, oh, it's got chest pain or I've got abdominal pain or I've got an open fracture or I've got, it's like, well, this person's got, you know, suicidal thoughts or thoughts of self-harm. It's like, oh, okay, but I can't do much about that. That's about them. And then just transports them. But there's so much more that we could do to yeah. Yeah. on that journey or to yeah. find out or to assess risk-wise yeah. to give you and them on the journey. Yeah, and it's funny, particularly when we're talking about risk assessment, and I'm really particular about this when I'm talking to my students about risk assessment, because performing a risk assessment on a patient when you're on scene with someone is probably one of the most important things that you can do. And unless you assess that patient properly, if you don't do it properly, you could potentially be leaving someone at home and that could lead to an adverse event. And now that we are registered professionals, that could now affect your own occupation and you as a professional are own personally liable for that. It's not just falling in the lap of the ambulance service that you work for. You kind of mentioned um, as well, the 9099 stuff was interesting, mm. but you sort of led about, um, you had quite a few cases that you could talk about um, where this happened, um, but you also had no idea about mental health and illness and also had a family member suffer some problems. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting, particularly in that time, um, there was, I really felt there was a lot of um, issues around stigma with mental illness. Like there was such a, there was such a belief amongst paramedics during that time where, you know, there was an attitude towards patient with mental illness where, you know, we would refer to them in derogatory ways. Um, I would say we, but, you know, a lot of paramedics would refer to people in derogatory ways or, you know, like crazies and stuff like that. And, you know, um, they would always refer to them in a negative way um, towards those as well as people who with um, problems with addiction and drug overdoses and stuff like that. Um, and it was never in a way, you know, that encompassed, you know, the work of paramedics and ambulance officers where, you know, we're, we're actually there to help people uh, and to support them. And I really found, particularly during those early years of my career, and it was funny that, you know, I remember back through a lot of that time and um, I remember the early, the early years, so... Mm. Um, you know, during the, you know, during the 2000s. So, you know, the, like, you know, P1s or 3Cs during those years, um, we didn't have cannulations. So if you had, you know, if you need a pain relief or you had a drug overdose, you had to call an, an intensive care paramedic to come in and treat your, to treat your patient who was experiencing a drug overdose and they administered Narcan and, to administer Narcan, it was administered through an, a mini jet and the dose was two milligrams of um, Narcan administered through um, a mini jet that was mainlined. So can you imagine that now? Like, yeah, yeah. So you, we had this mini jet. So, so what would happen is that the, the, the primary care cars would arrive on scene and they would have these patients and look, you would be on scene with these patients and you would call for IC backup to administer Narcan. Um, and unfortunately, not always the patients were treated with respect. Mm. Uh, and it was really sad because um, I have some really negative um, 
feelings about some of those times. Um, I feel that I have some experience and memories that um, I'm not very proud of, that I look back and I feel that um, I was involved in some times where people weren't treated with respect and I don't feel good about that kind of stuff. Um, I remember one time in particular where um, we attended to a, a, a guy who was unconscious uh, and my partner thought it was really funny to cut the clothes off this guy and put the defib pads on because, you know, we can treat it like a cardiac arrest. Uh, we called the IC down who administered Narcan. Um, and then once he'd browsed, uh, the patient friend said, oh, yeah, you know, he's just got out of jail now. You know, he doesn't have anything like he's just on the street now. He doesn't have any clothes or anything else. And he's just walked out you know, with his shirt, like we've just cut his shirt off him and um, he doesn't have any other shirts. Um, and he's walked away and my partner thought it was really funny and I just felt awful, yeah. you know, like we've just cut this shirt off this guy. Mm. And I think for me, like that was one of the moments where I had, where I just felt really awful and I thought I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure that there was a lot of other people out there who felt the same about things that were going on. Mm -hmm. um, and wanted to kind of move towards being supportive and, you know, doing the right thing for people um, because there were, you know, there's a lot of us out there who are like that. Um, so you kind of, you know, you move towards the positive and you move away from that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and as well as all of that, like during that time as well, there was quite a lot of... Um, quite a high rate of suicide as well amongst paramedics. Um, I there was I did lose a lot of colleagues during that time to suicide. Um, even one of the guys I worked on station with committed suicide. Um, I saw him a couple of days before he died. Um, he finished his shift. Um, and I had a conversation with him and then a couple of days later he didn't show up to work um, and then they found him a few days after that and that sorry wasn't the only that. time there was a few other people after that as well mm. sorry to hear that that's horrible mm. it happened it was it was quite widespread during that time you mm. know it really was and no no one was really asking for help and I kind of um I look back now and I look back on a lot of that stuff and no one was reaching out and I kind of have this, this, you know, understanding of that and I feel like some part of that was that, you know, we had this power like, you know, we're paramedics, we're supposed to handle everything, we're in charge, we can do, you know, we can do no wrong we're the ones, we're the healers, um, and they're the ones with mental illness. Um, and it's almost like we would never admit that we're the ones that suffer from mental illness. So yeah. we would never reach out and say that there was a problem. Yeah. So we would never kind of cross over that barrier. So there was a real kind of disconnect between mental illness and paramedics for a really long time during that time. Um, and I feel like it's changing now. I feel like we're really kind of moving forward now, but there's still, we still have a lot of work to go. Yeah. Um, it's, 
it's better now than it was, but I, I think, you know, we really still need to, you know, look after each other. I was going to raise a point on that, like um, in relation to, do you think the job in itself contributed to, I just always, you know, wonder about those facts. Like, is it what you see? Do you think that would have caused and the stress that you're under as a clinician? Because um, you do see those jobs that aren't nice and that people don't really realise. Do you think that those seeing what you see impacts, has a huge impact on their mental health? Yeah, I definitely Definitely. People aren't meant to see all of the stuff we see every day. Um, definitely. I think that there's a certain element of we only have a certain capacity in each of our cup. Hmm. And I think that we need to work every day to um, look after ourselves so that we can um, empty some of the burden that we carry and if we don't then we will get overfilled but i think that we see way more than what most people see and i think that that is something that we all need to be aware of and i think that some people carry it more than others do um i don't know why i think it's um it's just almost like what you do um, for others, you kind of carry within yourself. Mm. Um, I feel like I carry a lot of what I do because I feel really deeply about what I do as a job. Um, mm. But I can't do it any other way because I really care very deeply about um, my work. Um, I feel passionately about my work. When I go to work, I give part of myself yeah. every time I go to work and I can't do it any other way. No. I think what Tara's raised is really important. I think as clinicians, we need to listen to that. Um, there's times when our cup is full. And I guess the question for anyone listening is, when is your cup full? Is your cup full now? Um, are you already overflowing? Are you at your breaking point? And we all have our breaking points. You know, some cases affect more than others. And it doesn't mean that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you're that you're not a good paramedic or that you're not a good nurse you're not a good doctor if, if a case has affected you it actually means that you care and that you you give part of yourself um but it's important for longevity that we look after ourselves it's also important to remember like tara said is that you know sometimes these cases really affect us so deeply and, and that we feel like no one is there and we feel alone and i just wanted to say that you know there are people out there that are trained that can you can talk through cases with um, and if you own your you know clinical environment and you need to talk to somebody um, there are services out there that can be you know helpful even talking to people who are trained in this field because um, sometimes it's hard to open up because when we open up parts of ourselves about this case it reveals other things um, but it's important to remember that we you know that we need to not always put on a brave face there's times and places for that um, and to let others know that we are hurting and that we are, you know, deeply affected by a case. Even if it was a minor case, it can affect us. Whether or not it's something you've seen in the room or a smell or someone that you've run into. Um, or a name or a memory. Um, if that affects you in your everyday environment, then that needs to be addressed. Um, and we're not perfect, we're human. Um, but I think we can learn 
um, from history that we don't want to repeat itself. And maybe we'd keep looking after each other. I, I was walking out of the ambulance bay the other week and one of the paramedics said to me, hey, you all right? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm okay. And I said, you're just not smiling like your usual self. And I thought that was powerful. It just made me realize that um, you can look after your colleagues. Um, you work with them one-on-one -on -one in the car or one-on-one -on -one in the hospital and maybe just check in. I know it's like that cliche thing, are you okay? But it, sometimes just looking at their body language or their mannerisms, how they're behaving and what are they doing. Um, and even after a big case, just, just look out for each other. It is important. And um, it's not because we're in some system that, you know, yeah, it's because we're people and we're human and we, we should care about our colleagues that we work with because they're our friends, not just people we work with. They're people that we actually enjoy um, spending time with. Yeah. I was going to ask something too on like, it seems random, but like humour, like we use humour as paramedics and nurses and, you know, doctors or yeah, because of the things we see and we try to like make it sound less than it is. Like I remember conversations that I'll get asked and how was your day? And I'll say something and I'll go, when I was doing trauma especially, I'm like, yeah. oh, you're pretty messed up. I know, um, I know. I've yeah. done that before as well. And it's so funny. Like, I mean, I think it's funny as well. And like, it's really horrible because um, I cracked a joke um, at a funeral and um, it was not taken well at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I should not have said that. <laughs> um, and I'm like, I really wish I hadn't have said that. And I'm, and I just like, I'm so sorry, but I just, at the time, that's how we do um, yeah. Um, I don't even know why we do that. Like, no, I'm yeah. Just interested because um, I, I wanted to know as well, is there a screening, pro like not being rude, but like, are they starting to screen people that are coming into being paramedics to sort of say, um, Hey, you know, I want to let you know that you're going to see some pretty nasty stuff. Hmm. And you've got to set some things in stone before you start that are going to set up good healthy habits. Because if you see this for 30 years, you could be off with, you know, not being rude, but like PTSD and other mm. things that can have a huge impact on your life. Mm. It's actually, no, they're actually not looking into that. But you're well above, you're far in front of everyone as you are always Ben Crook. Um, and it's something that I've looked into and this is something that I want to research and maybe you and I can do this together. Um, is Do you know what it is? Is looking into risk perception versus risk tolerance. So these are the two things. So risk perception and this is where somebody has an understanding of the risk that they're um, of what they're about to do or have a real understanding of the risk that's involved in what's going on uh, and risk tolerance so that's that risk tolerance um, you know it makes sense so risk tolerance to what's going on so someone who has high risk perception so that means they have a good understanding of the risk that's going on uh, and high risk tolerance means that they're tolerant to risk means that they will you know be able to understand the risk fully that's going on and they'll be able to um perform well under pressure in that situation. So that's like, you know, you're really good, strong, like tolerant paramedics that will be able to perform well under pressure. So high risk tolerance, uh, sorry, high risk perce perception mm -hmm. with low risk tolerance. So these are people that understand well with the 
the risk that's involved, but will be really hesitant to perform under pressure. So they're the ones that will be hesitant to actually perform an intervention, even though they know what's going on. So I mean, no, so high, low risk tolerance and high risk perception or high risk perception. So they're your cowboys. So you want to kind of you want to have both high. You don't want to have your um, your one high and one low. You want both high. So it's like. You know, and the same with testosterone and low cortisol. So you want low stress hormone, high testosterone, you want high risk perception, mm -hmm. uh, and you want them to be able to have good tolerance at that time as well. Love it. So, Love it. Um, my own personal belief is that yeah. complex interplay between the lack of mental health education and the cultural belief that paramedics are always in charge. Yeah, yeah totally. Like it's something... Yeah, it's been really interesting to see the difference from when um, from when I first started um, in the lack of education and just that real kind of power play between paramedics and mental health patients and um, and and having that lack of education and the stigma against mental health at that time um, and the amount of paramedics who were suffering from negative mental health and poor mental health at that time, substance abuse, mm. um, suicide, uh, and all of those things that came along with that at that time. Um, and, you know, travelling during then, I think it was about 10 years ago that they really, I think it was a little bit more than 10 years ago that they implemented the mental health education within paramedicine. And that time as well, they started to look at supporting paramedics um, mm. with mental health education and support for paramedics as well. The problem is I remember, um, I remember, I think I'd been in the job about five years uh, and I damaged my rotator cuff. Um, and I went off or something like that. Was it then? And I remember at the time um, that I had some, um, what was it then? I can't remember at the time or what was going on at the time. Mm. Um, that I, when I went off, uh, I had some issues with, with the recovery. Um, and then I ended up needing a reconstruction or something like that. And then I'd said to my GP, oh, I'm not really coping or whatever. You know, I really like to go and see a psychologist. And she'd said to me, look, I don't think we should put it through work cover because what will happen is that they will turn around and say that you're just saying that because you just want to stay off work and it's got nothing to do with your injury. So instead of doing that, what we'll do is we'll just put it through um, Medicare so that you can get your 10 sessions through Medicare um, as opposed to putting it through uh, under work cover because it's just, she said, in my experience, it just becomes a massive, massive problem um, to put, to connect it to your work cover. Um, so we'll just do it this way. Look, it would just be so much simpler. And it's just like, even just the thought of that, like whether it's related or not, like even just the thought of that, like it's just so ridiculous to say like that the first thing they're going to do is say that, oh, you're just off because you just you just want to stay off work. You know, it's not really anything to do with mm -hmm. your, your injury. You just want to stay off work. Like it's you don't really have a problem. Um, you don't, just don't want to go back to work. Like that's awful. Like you're just accusing that person of not wanting to go to work. And I'm not the only one. I know of, of several other people that have said the same thing, that they've had the same type of conversation as well. It's almost trying to divide the brain and the mind mm. and the body and say, well, they're not interrelated. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And it, and it was funny at the time because I went into the office 
um, and I'd had a conversation and there was half a dozen of us in the office and every single person in the office at that time who was off on work cover, every single person was seeing a psychologist because they were struggling at that point in time with what was going on for whatever reason. Like yeah. it wasn't just one, you know, one thing or another. Everyone was struggling with what with something. Mm. That's it. That's super interesting. Mm. Um, from your experience, how hard is it to speak up if you are a clinician? and you feel like you are struggling? Oh, very. Yeah, very. For, for different reasons. I think that um, as paramedics, I feel like you're always meant to just handle everything. Um, you're always meant to be the one. You're the healer. So you're the one that goes out there and you're the one that fixes people and you're the one that copes with everything. You're the one that looks after all the people around you. So when you're the one that needs help, like just reaching out, it's just it's it seems impossible. Mm. Like it seems impossible, and it is impossible. Like to reach out, you know, it's it is. Yeah, it's hard. And, yeah, it is. And I remember um, for me, um, I was when I when I was eight months pregnant I robbed I ended up breaking my ankle um, and went off on work cover when I was on maternity leave and then obviously when I was on work cover on maternity leave and couldn't move anywhere and ended up having my leg up wasn't coping stuck at home couldn't do anything hormonal so didn't you know it wasn't coping so it's you know it's really hard like it's hard you know to put your hand up and at that point in time as well so when I was about three months pregnant then um, I had a situation where I attended to a patient who was in anaphylaxis this was about two o'clock in the morning so we were backing a crew up and um, incidentally Ben this I wasn't I hadn't planned on telling this case but this is actually very appropriate for this situation anyway so feel free to use this one um we were backing a, a crew up at two o'clock in the morning for an anaphylaxis so they've administered um 500 mics of adrenaline I am and I think they were just about to give the second one and this guy was really unwell mm -hmm. so I was just pushing three months pregnant at the time so two o'clock in the morning we've raced to the job I've walked in um we we've gone upstairs and this guy was sitting outside the bathroom on the floor in the hallway and I've gone in with the drug kit um they the p1 was sitting directly in front of this patient uh, and they had um they just put a, a cannula in mm. um and they had the guy monitored and everything like that uh, and they'd done everything. They'd done a really good job. They had, you know, oxygen on. They'd done this, that, and the other. Everything was really good job. Two very competent officers. Um, I, we had adrenaline in a mini jet at that time. So I pulled out the mini jet and I said, um, at this time, so the dose was 100 micrograms IV because he'd had two doses of IM. Mm -hmm. um, so I've given him the mini jet. I said, look, okay, let's give him 100 micrograms IV. Mm. So I didn't. That's all I said to him at the time. And okay. so you can imagine mm. he's just gone to give him the whole mini jet, hasn't he? Far out. 
Yeah. So um, he'd given him almost half by the time I'd seen what was going on. Yeah. Um, so obviously he'd given him nearly five times what he was supposed to have. Um, I've seen him. What are you doing? I said, it was, I said, um, just a hundred mics. I said, it was one meal. He's gone, oh, and oh. he's realised at the time what he's done and he's grabbed it and then he's thrown it in the sharps and oh. then the patient's gone, oh, oh, what have you done? And then he's gone, oh, oh. And then I've just grabbed a vomit bowl. <laughs> I've just grabbed yeah. a vomit bag because I knew it was coming. And then he's turned around <laughs> and then he's just turned into the exorcist. Yeah, and it yeah, was yeah. just It was coming <laughs> from everywhere. His heart rate's gone up to like 220. Mm. Uh, he's gone oh like he's just gone oh my god like and I've just gone wow like I honestly thought oh my god we've just killed him like yeah. that's just what I thought at the time mm. so we stayed there for a while his heart rate calmed down a bit you know got down to about 170 180 or something like that my partners eventually come upstairs I don't know what he was doing yeah and I said <laughs> I said go and get the carry sheet he said what do you need the carry sheet for and I said go and get the carry sheet <laughs> So he's brought the carry sheet up. Oh, what else you to ask? I know, he's going to get the carry sheet. Um, and the poor guy that gave it, oh, he felt so bad. Um, we carried him down. The patient who ended up being a medical student, um, paramedic, like, <laughs> like yeah, because um, we don't we don't cause a medication error in anyone. We just cause cause it in someone who knows exactly what's going on. Yep. <laughs> so, um, in the back of the car, and I said, look, I said. We've ended up giving you um, more adrenaline than what we should have. I said, look, you were really sick because he was actually really, really unwell. Um, he had no urticaria by the time he got to hospital. So that was a positive. <laughs> um, and he was okay. Look, he ended up being okay, thank God. Yes. Um, but I told, um, thank God Kerry was on. <laughs> <laughs> so we've taken the patient in um i told kerry um i handed over i handed over to the doctor that was in charge i rang the duty dom i told the duty dom i reported it i did everything right um i had a massive conversation to the guy and i said look it's my fault because i really should have told you what had gone on but i ended up with ptsd after that you know i had flashbacks i had you know um i was waking up in the middle of the night um i was having palpitations um, because anytime I thought of this job, I just was having these anxiety attacks. And this was happening for, for quite some time after that. Uh, and this was happening when I was pregnant and off on maternity leave as well. So um, I ended up having psychology when I was pregnant and after I'd had the baby. Um, but I was having it because I, I had PTSD at that time as well. And lucky for me, I had a great psychologist and I ended up... Um, having you know it actually ended up working and my symptoms went away so I was one of the lucky ones and ended up with no symptoms afterwards which is really good because I know a lot of people don't have that and they end up having it stay around with them for longer afterwards but I was lucky enough for it to go away mm. so that was good and you know uniforms sometimes yeah yeah so much yeah yeah mm. and I find I'm really um I try and share as much of this as I can because I think it's really important to let especially when you're senior and you've been around for a while I think it's really important to let the junior guys know about this stuff because I think it kind of makes a safe space for the junior guys to share their their mistakes uh, and it makes them feel 
it, that it's easier to talk about, you know. So when yeah. we talk about stuff, then then they can as well. Yeah, yeah. I've got an episode coming out soon on when I make a mistake. <laughs> I'm really. Oh, no, I've got about fifty for you. Oh yeah, <laughs> like I can, I can do a series. <laughs> It's, you honestly could you could write you could have a podcast about making mistakes oh, and yeah. I think it would be a great like it would be a great thing because I think it's like you need to talk about this stuff and make 100%. it just more like make it just more open so that people know that you can talk about it. and I do think what you raised then about getting professional help I've sought professional help multiple times yeah about interactions I've had with patients yeah you do you do and I do as well like I did a pediatric arrest you know a few weeks ago now and I may like I called the chaplain and sat down and had a conversation about that um, with him um, just to have the conversation and knew that if I needed to go further from that um, I remember going in and sitting there and as we started working on the baby like I could she she reminded me a lot of my little girl so it was just that kind of re relation back to my little girl that I kind of felt was uneasy. It sat uneasy with me. Um, and that was the thing that I needed to kind of get off my chest, but I felt okay after that. Yeah. Um, but it's little things like that, that you kind of need to make sure are okay after yeah. a while. But um, let's cover like um, patient assessment process. So what do we mm. need to cover and why? A mental mm. state examination. What is it? What do we do? What's the point? Yeah, the mental state examination, look, I, I think the overall patient assessment for a mental health patient is really important. I mean, you would perform a patient a patient assessment on a, on a mental health patient the same as you would perform a patient assessment on a patient you would go to for medical reasons. So you would, you know, understand the situation prior to arriving. I think it's really important to remember that specifically with mental health patients, there always seems to be like a precipitating event or a triggering event that precipitates or triggers the incident that happens. So there always seems to be something that kind of causes that snowballing effect of what's going on in that person's life. So what is it that's kind of made that person um, feel or, or their behaviour kind of exacerbated that's caused you to call today? Um, and really kind of finding that out uh, is a really uh, is a really important part of assessment when you're speaking to that person or to the people that have called the ambulance for you to assess that person today. Um, there's a couple of things to go through, particularly with the patient assessment. So um, the symptoms that the patient is experiencing when you're arriving, it's really important just to go through those basic symptoms uh, and find out what it is that is most significant to the patient or that you're observing in the patient when you're arriving um, on scene um, and what you can see is happening with that person. Um, you need to find out if the patient has any kind of history of mental illness, um, if they've previously been treated for mental illness, um, and also if they've had any hospitalizations before. So if they've been to hospital, um, where have they been? Has it been successful? You know, not just, oh, yeah, they went into hospital, you know, they got scheduled once or whatever, and then they got discharged. So they went into hospital, they had a short stay um, because they were having hallucinations or whatever, um, and they received certain medication, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's important to find out details and specifics about treatment for their illnesses. 
You also need to find out specifics about medical illnesses, um, and that kind of goes hand in hand with the mental illness as well. Um, some things can kind of tie in as well, so it's really important to find out about that. Um, patients could be experiencing, you know, they could have diabetes, they could be experiencing some kind of problems with their diabetes, they could be having a hypo um, and be a little bit delirious from that and that's what's causing their symptoms now. So it's really important to make sure that you do that full assessment on the patient. So even though the patient has a history of mental illness, make sure you do all of the physical assessments on them and, and assess them properly through all areas. I know sometimes get, people get a little bit lazy in that area as well. They just think, oh yeah, this is just a, this is just a, pa a mental health patient. I'm not going to bother doing any assessments here. But unless you look, you're not going to find, are you? Ooh, love it. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so make, yeah, make sure you look for things like, you know, particularly when we know that patients who have mental illness are much more likely to suffer physical illness. So patients with mental illness are more likely to have poorer physical illness for many different reasons. So making sure that we assess them, we check their blood pressure, their pulse, we have a look at their heart, you check their blood sugar, temperature, all of that kind of stuff. So we make sure all of that is good as well so that we know that we've got an accurate picture about their health when we take them into hospital. I think this is something that's very poorly done out there so make sure that we really do a proper assessment on them because these guys are unwell um, sometimes people who are suffering from psychosis or hallucinations or something like that they may not have eaten and drunk properly for the last few days so this might be affecting their health in multiple different areas so making sure that you do a proper assessment in all areas really really important so doing that full physical assessment is really important there. Mm, so at, yeah, so as we go further down, um, finding out um, about, well, finding out about the history, we've got the history there, medications, uh, any kind of diagnosed history, um, find out if they've got any previous diagnosis there as well. Uh, any family history, any family diagnosis there. Um, and also, uh, their social and family history too. So one thing we know for sure about mental health is that people with good family and social supports do much, much better um, with mental illness than people who don't have the family support. So this comes into play a lot when we're performing a risk assessment and we're performing a mental status exam examination on someone. So if you've got a patient um, and you're assessing risk on that person and they don't have any close family, they don't have any friends and you're concerned about risk, you should not be leaving that person at home at all. So if someone has more, like if they have more close ties at home and then you're a little bit borderline in some other areas, then you can probably work a little bit with what's going on at home. But if someone doesn't have any close ties at home, then you, your risk assessment really should be a lot tighter. Okay. Um, so that's a really important thing yeah. to remember there. That's an awesome, like almost like a tick box list. Like yeah, yeah. Is anyone with them? Is anyone around them? And yeah. people that... They're currently like off or fighting with, or they got supportive, yeah, yeah, sitting with them or giving them that support. Like you're right, because in the end, yeah. you're leaving the environment. They're staying, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, yeah. so when you're making that decision about whether someone's just safe to stay at home, you know, like you've got to kind of be thinking about all of this stuff. And I'm not sure, um, sometimes I don't know whether people are thorough enough when they make these decisions, when they're looking at kind of support structures yeah. with people at home. I mean, it can be hard sometimes when it's the, the weekend, um, when you don't necessarily, or you're not able to communicate with friends and family members and things like that. Um, but you should at least try um, and mm. see what kind of networks that person's got um, to see um, how well set up they are to assess whether they've really, you know, got that support at home to be staying there. Just for people out there, like when you're a paramedic and you get to a job, do you have the ability to not transfer someone to hospital? Um, so the decision... That was, sorry, no, it's, a, it's an interesting... Question. Yeah, so yeah. the decision um, on whether you transport someone. So um, if we arrive on scene, mm. um, we make a decision on whether someone goes to hospital or not based on their presentation. So we would perform an assessment on them and then we would perform a mental state examination on someone. So when we're performing the mental state examination on them, we're getting a snapshot into the state uh, their mental state at that point in time. So we're assessing them how they're physically appearing to us when we're looking at them. Yes. So you can see how they're dressed. You can see their surroundings. So what's their house look like? Are they dirty? Are they clean? Mm. Um, uh, does, is there food in the fridge? Um, is the mail in the mailbox? Or does it look like they're looking after themselves or not? Um, are they clean? Um, do they brush their hair? All of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we're assessing their behaviour as well. So um, are they sitting up tall? Do they look slouched, positive, negative, all of that kind of stuff. And then we're assessing their behaviour, their speech um, and how they appear and then what they're saying to us as well at that time. So what are they saying and then how are they saying it? So what, what are the thoughts that they have in their mind um, are they racing? Um, are the thoughts that they have in their mind kind of processing evenly? Um, are they able to hold a conversation and not kind of jump to and fro? Um, are they able to understand what you're saying to them when you're having the conversation with them? Or um, are they kind of a little bit vague and kind of zoned out during that conversation so we make all these decisions based on how they're appearing to us during that conversation mm. when we're assessing them at that point in time so we're using the information that we obtain during that mental state examination to assess their insight and judgment so their insight into their own health mm. so how much insight they have into their own health, so how healthy they are or whether they're unwell, whether they have any kind of mental illness um, and their judgment. So whether they're able to make decisions on their own health that are based, you know, that are in their own best interest. Yeah. So a good example of that is someone who is, um, is suffering psychosis or something like that as to like, whether they're able to really, you know, see that the thoughts that they're having are not real or yeah. whether they're able to um, 
mm. whether they think they are real. I mean, oh. pills are a classic example. So, you know, you look at you look at pills and then you look at the date on the pills because then you can decide when was that pill box prescribed to that patient? Was the pill box prescribed to them or was it prescribed to someone else? So how long has that person had that box for? Um, are there any other boxes around? Like all of this kind of stuff, yeah. you know, like your real detective in yeah, that situation yeah. trying yeah. to find out what's going on. Mm. Um, and it can be like there's a lot of information that you need to pick up there to find out what's, you know, what's really going on with that person. And it can be really complex in some situations. Like being able to work out what is really going on can be a bit of an art sometimes yes. because um, having differences between people uh, can be quite confronting sometimes um, and can be difficult to kind of decipher. So you've got to really, and you've got to be quite diplomatic in that situation because you don't really want to upset people, no. especially if there's a bit of a volatile situation yes. um, and you want to keep everyone calm. So you try and... Um, you try and smooth everything over uh, and you're like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do and non-confrontational and just um, really try and move towards getting everyone out, really. That's like yeah. the safest thing that yeah. you can do there. Yeah. And I'll, it's so interesting because even from mental health, it, like there's a, such a spectrum from like the person screaming in a full psycho psychotic rage mm -hmm. to someone who's completely depressed. Yeah. You know, like on yeah. the couch, not wanting to move or hasn't eaten or drunken. Yeah. And yeah. You, yeah. You know, extremely dry physically as well as mentally. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because, um, like, remember, like, way back is that we had no powers of sedation like years ago is that when, when you had someone like that, you just called the police and they just manhandle this person and chuck them with handcuffs in the back of the paddy wagon. Like this is how you treated people who were, who were psychotic, who were manic. Like it's just, it's so like, it was so violent and so aggressive uh, and really like, like just against like patient-centered care, like in the, to the core of what patient-centered care is now, where you know what we do now is is just so different uh, where we focus really on looking after that person I mean ultimately if you have to sedate that person you do but we do and we minimize the risk to that person as much as possible yeah uh, and as and as far as like restraint goes is you want to make sure that you restrain that person the least restrictive way that you can yeah. um, and maintain that person's dignity at all times. And I'm a really big fan in just like verbal de-escalation anyway. Yeah. And that's something really big that I talk a lot about with my students as well yeah. um, is that I really think um, I very rarely have to sedate patients yeah. um, and I've never been hit at work. Yeah. Uh, and I, and many people that I work with, like 23 years I've been working on road and I've never, never been hit. And yeah. I know a lot of people that have worked on road a long time and never been hit. Yeah. And if you approach people with respect, and I always treat everybody with respect and calmly, and um, if you do that, you they they give you with respect they give you respect so back it really does um always work in a positive way mm. um and um and i always really try and instill that into my students when i talk to them about escalations you know addressing all of this stuff early is really important mm -hmm. i just did a um a module last week with my students on um on ACEs, like adverse childhood experiences and how that highly correlates with um, increased uh, likelihood of mental health and increased suicidality and 
generalised poor health and chronic illness as you get older. So the more ACEs, so what an ACE is, adverse childhood experience. So things like childhood neglect, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, uh, parent in prison, all that kind of stuff. If you look up ACEs, um, okay. you'll see all of that stuff there and how that correlates with it. Uh, and if you address it early and you get support for these for these kids um, who have ACEs, um, they do much better as they get older. Yeah. Uh, and it's just so, um, it's interesting when you look into it, um, but it's just something that just needs to be addressed at a younger age. And yeah. I think the more that we recognise and the more that we support kids um, at this age by providing these services, um, the better they're going to do as they get older. 100%. And yeah. I, I, I'm always very like, I'm a bit of a softy. So yeah. when I know a patient and I read about them or they tell me about their story, mm. I'm so drawn into the sense of, of, of the person and realising that, I mean, in life, sometimes we start, some people start well behind others or, yeah. Yeah. or not even get a start. Like they're just like there from being a tiny kid by themselves. Mm. And then you kind of realise some people started along, along the track with getting help the whole way along. Yeah. Yeah. but they can still end up in the same spot yeah. and they yeah. both need help and just in mm. different ways. Um, you know, yeah. your background does have a big impact on, on you as a person. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Um, it does. And I think that being in the position that we have, that the more that we can support these people every day just by the things that we do at work, you know, that I just, I love my job because I feel like that we can make a difference in these people people's lives. 100%. Um, you mentioned about risk. So what is the risk? Um, you said, you know, identifying risk is the most important mm. thing you need to do it in every patient. Yes. Yeah. Risk is, yeah. How does she do it? <laughs> risk is risk is so important and it's something that um, I think that we need to really identify um, as being one of the most important parts of our assessment and our treatment of patients with mental illness. Um, when you are speaking or when you're assessing a patient with mental illness, we need to understand what's going on for that person. Uh, we need to assess the risk that that person, um, the risk of that person harming themselves, the risk of that person harming anyone else around them, the risk of leaving them at home, um, the risk, like there's so many risks involved uh, in various situations that um, we need to really make sure that the decisions that we make um, in each case that we attend to minimises the risk. And the only way that we can do that is by performing uh, an in-depth assessment assessment on every patient that we do. And I don't think that we do that for all of our patients. I don't think we do that for all of our mental health patients. I know that there's a lot of people out there who really tend to be quite lax with their mental health patient assessments. They're just like, oh, no, they're okay. Or they don't really ask those deep questions. They don't really get in, you know, get in and assess that patient and decide whether, you know, that patient is, is, having any suicidal thoughts, you know, do you feel, um, have you ever thought of, of suicide or anything like that? And even thoughts of suicide uh, are enough for that patient to, to need to go and seek and get help. Yeah. Um, the, the, the population now, uh, particularly the young population, um, are so um, 
are so um, vulnerable to this and so impulsive that that step between thinking about suicide and taking steps to actually do it, we just don't know about how far that distance is. So even a thought of suicide is enough for that person to go to hospital. It used to be, oh, yeah, have you got any thoughts of suicide? Um, how, you know, have you made any plans or, or have you thought about how you do it? And have you made, you know, have you gone to the shop and bought the tablets or whatever? You know what I mean? Like going down that whole process and stuff. Whereas now, like, you can, you can ask the person if they're feeling suicidal or have you taken steps towards you know, going through with it. But as far as that goes, you can ask questions like that. But any thoughts of suicide, that person needs to go and get help because yeah. the distance between thoughts of suicide and actual suicide is completely unknown. Yeah. So that person needs to seek help straight away. You know, it could be an argument with their partner. It could be like, you know, the kid's making a big mess in the house when they go home. It could be, you know, getting in trouble from their boss at work. It could be, you know, getting a pay cut. It could be getting a speeding fine on the way home from work. Like it could be anything, you know, that could be the thing that takes that person over the edge and you just don't know what it is. Um, it could be a woman who's feeling hormonal. Like it's yeah. just, yeah. it's so unknown. Like it's just, it's unpredictable and all I know is that I don't want to be the one that left the patient at home and had an adverse event. Yeah. Mm, you know, I've been with the father who's been searching around suburbs looking for the son um, who ended up finding him at the bottom uh, of a building after he jumped off the top um, because he's escaped the hospital. Like, you know, it's, it's situations like that where you go, I, this this just shouldn't happen so you just you want to avoid that at all costs because mm, yeah sorry that's just yeah mm. yeah mm. there's people's yeah sorry just thinking about that it's tough I think it's really, look, I will always try and talk to the patient and sit down with them and just say, look, I'm really concerned about you. um, And I just don't feel right leaving you at home because um, I don't feel, I I just feel like you're not well at the moment and I really want you to get some help. Um, And I think the best place for you to be is in hospital right now. Um, And if I left you here, I would not be doing my job right. And I just would not feel right about it. I think that's just the bottom line is where I would sit there. Um, If they still said no, um, I would explain to them the fact that within my role, um, I have the ability to take them to hospital against their will, uh, and that is called a section. So I have the ability to take them to hospital against their will, uh, and I can enforce that, uh, even though I don't want to. 
but I can actually take you to hospital against your will. Um, I try and do it without involving police if people aren't getting aggressive um, because ultimately the person is unwell. Uh, they're not a criminal. Um, so I try and go down the least restrictive method possible. Um, obviously, if someone's getting aggressive or I feel like, you know, um, they're not really understanding or comprehending that side of what I'm talking about. Um, and I feel like they're going to be resistant towards leaving the premises and actually coming with me. Mm. Um, then police might be required in that situation uh, and we'll get them to assist. I try and uh, get, uh, I try and do the schedule myself rather than getting the police schedule as well. Uh, I know that our schedule goes on their medical record at the hospital, but basically just goes on their file, but it doesn't necessarily go on their kind of record record. So when they go back into ED, it's not like it comes up as a flag or anything no, like no. that. It'd just be their initial presentation of mental health, yeah. whatever the thing was or. Yeah. Or, yeah. So yeah. I feel that's more respectful because I know that if someone um, has been sectioned under the police, that um, if the police get called back to them, uh, that it gets flagged and like the police yeah. get notified that they have been previously sectioned. And I feel like that's a bit of a, a st stigma and it kind of tars them. Right. So I tend to kind of go, look, do you know what? I'm going to do it my way yes. um, if possible, because I feel like it's more of a medical condition rather than it being a police issue. Yeah. Um, that's just my own personal oh, like preference. That. Oh, yeah, we've mentioned that we need to also discuss the difference between treating someone under the section mm. the duty of care. Yeah, well, duty of care is more re revolving around kind of patients who go to hospital who are refusing but but need to come under a medical banner. So if someone's yeah. got a medical problem, um, this is more to do with kind of um, say you've got an intoxicated patient who's yeah. heavily intoxicated and they're refusing to go to hospital and they're more to a risk themselves. Yeah. So they're going to go out and dart in front of traffic or something like that yeah. um, or they're... Um, I had one who was um, who was um, high on mushrooms or LSD or something like that, and he was like literally running in, in front of traffic. So we'd um, taken him to hospital. He didn't need to be sectioned because um, it was a medical problem, and we were transporting him uh, because he was a danger to himself but he didn't need a mental health assessment. So basically, if someone is sectioned, they need to be assessed by a mental health clinician when they go to hospital. So you're sectioning someone because you're saying when they arrive at hospital and they come into hospital, they need to be assessed by a mental health clinician. Yep. So this is what we're saying here. And, and the problem is that pe people are sectioning patients so they don't abscond. Mm. for that reason only so this is kind of the problem that I see sometimes and then there's paramedics that I've observed section someone because it's almost like they're kind of covering their ass just in case the patient absconds yeah. and it's like well do you know what it's a little bit of duty of care so if the patient's um you're transporting a patient I'll give you an example like a yeah. 75 year old lady who's kind of got dementia yeah. um, and she's unwell so she's got like a, a UTI or something like that and she's got dementia so she's kind of get, trying to get up and run away and so will not run because she can't run but she's trying to get up and kind of crawl away and she's doing her best to kind of shuffle and all that kind of stuff uh, and then I've you know she's putting her on the bed and and the crew have sectioned her mm. okay and I think that's a little bit odd because she probably doesn't need a mental health assessment Definitely. Correct. You yes, agree? Correct. Yeah. 
Yeah, so really when you're talking about it, so the point of a section is someone who requires a mental health assessment when they're in hospital, not just someone who needs to be, um, you know, restrained or needs to, you know, stay in hospital when they are there. There's a little bit of confusion around when you put the MRD on someone, so the restraints on someone when you transport them to hospital, because there's some of the hospitals say if you put the MRD on someone that you have to section them. But if you've got a 75-year-old lady with a UTI who's trying to get up and get off the stretcher, who doesn't need a mental health assessment, but she just needs to stay on the stretcher for her own safety, um, she doesn't need a section. Um, So I don't believe that she needs to be sectioned because she just needs to stay on the stretcher for her own safety. So there's some there's some grey areas in there as well because there's some inconsistencies between kind of hospitals and staff and things like that. Um, And I'm just here to clear it all up because I'm saying that 75-year-old Nana who's on the bed who's there for medical reasons does not need to be sectioned because really like if you agree um, a patient that's there for medical reasons doesn't need to be sectioned Mm. even if they need to be restrained to stay there it's true someone who's intoxicated who is a danger to themselves doesn't need to be section to stay there for people to remember so paramedics to remember that you need to be very clear in your handover when you're at triage um, what the situation is with the patient if you have a patient that doesn't require a mental health assessment you don't need to section them but you need to be clear that the patient is a risk of absconding yeah so that's okay you know if a patient is a risk of absconding you just need to be clear about that mm-hmm. you don't need to section them yeah. um, um, you know, you just need to let the ED know so that they'll need to put some things in place to make sure that that patient remains safe, you know, because that's your duty of care to make sure that that patient stays safe. Like I know, um, and I know it's hard with some of the junior guys out there, they just feel um, not as confident to kind of um, convey this information over. So if I can say to you, just be confident in yourself just to make sure that you let these guys know so let the triage nurse know that the patient is not a mental health patient so it doesn't need to be sectioned but they do need to have some safety um, put in place so that they are cared for uh, and you don't risk that patient absconding because it's really important to make sure that you look after them that's why I think that this like really is the foundation of what paramedicine is and how to be a good paramedic. If you can know what to say to to patients um, in the right way and how to connect to people, then you will be a truly fantastic paramedic. Mm. So true, eh? Like, you know, we you wonder why all these businesses have people people talking about communication or talking about in, in that context it's because it's yeah. so pivotal because we're not just dealing with patients with them people yeah um and i think that's really interesting mm-hmm. and also man you've been through a lot hey like <laughs> and, and i think that's you know we talked off air and i hopefully we can put like even you've had a previous stroke before yeah, um, yeah. you talked about ptsd you talked about cases you've been through that you remember that mm. you know and colleagues passing away from yeah suicide like and, and you still put on a uniform a uniform um to be a paramedic 
uh, and um, not not hats off to you in a derogatory term, but I respect you as a clinician because I think um, it just shows that you, through all of the hard things, you do give a, a toss about your patients and you do really care. Um, and I think that's admirable, um, admirable. And I think it's um, important that we have people like you in the, in the workforce. So, yeah. Yeah. If I can just, I think it's, I know it's really cliche when you talk about as well. And um, the, the same as you, when you say it, like not trying to be like condescending or anything, but like there's certain interactions that I have with people on road and it's probably some of the least exciting um, I know other people get more excited about all the exciting jobs and stuff, but some of the interactions that I have um, with patients and patients' family on road, you know, when people are just truly grateful and so loving towards and appreciative of what you do for them, mm. like, I just, like, that's where I get back. That's what fills my cup. Mm. Um, just getting that appreciation back. Uh, from them in that situation like and that helps me to give back to others in that situation too 100%. it's it's a it's a two-way thing it's not just yeah. a one-way thing that's awesome the edgm podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today the Darawal people and pay my respects to the elders past present and emerging if you want to get in contact with me, um, you can look at my Instagram, edjam underscore podcast, and also check out my TikTok as well. Um, just thanks to everyone who does follow the podcast. 